0: How's it going, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Stupid Questions podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with Ed O'Malley, I believe, and I said that name right. He is the founder of Velovetta, which is an aerodynamic, easy-to-slip-on triathlon shoe. Uh, we'll make sure to link their stuff in the show notes below, but uh, first 30 minutes, we just talk about who Andy is. He's a mechanical engineer. He's got a lot of crazy experience from working in aerospace and aeronautics to uh, working on hydro hydrogen-based engines. Um, which have really high compression ratios. If you know anything about gas versus diesel, you know diesel takes a lot more compression. Hydrogen takes like 10 times more than that um, to light efficiently. So anyway, without further ado, wanted to introduce you to Ed O'Malley. Well, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, Super awesome to have you here. I was actually just watching some of your videos online, and I was getting all giddy watching the, uh, I guess it's from about four years ago with the the machine that was actually like pressing the shoe mold or whatever around and and I guess attaching the leather to the sole or something like that.
1: Yeah. The, the lasting machine, they're pretty incredible little machines, big machines actually.
0: Yeah. It seems, is it all pneumatic driven? Uh, it is pneumatic. Yeah. Okay. That's super cool. Um, without getting too far into it, we'll get into it later too. But the reason it excites me so much is, um, in college, I started a company called Sway. We made it's a textile product but insulated camping hammocks so i got to go to asia and work on the lines and try to make stuff and i'm not an engineer by any means but working with the small parts and just thinking through how to make something into a reality is like such a cool thing so i'm super excited to have you on
1: yeah yeah I'd, i'd be happy to talk about it the innovation that goes into the actual manufacturing processes of things is pretty incredible and almost nobody gets to see it so
0: yeah Yeah, super neat. Cool. Well, we'll get into it. Um, But the first question that I kind of want to start out with is a little bit of a third person question, and that is, who is Ed?
1: Oh, God. Do I even know the answer to that question? (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, I don't know. I, I guess I am a person that is thrilled by both maybe three things like technical challenges I love solving technical challenges yeah um, I learned when I was in college that I well no I learned before that I learned in summer camp that I uh, was really motivated by physical endurance challenges okay um, and then uh, throw a little bit of adventure in with either of those two things and like I'm in my happy place so yeah I guess that's who I am.
0: Yeah, good deal. So where are you from?
1: Uh, I was born in New York City, uh, but I moved to San Antonio, Texas when I was one-year-old. So I, okay. I grew up there, went to high school there.
0: Okay, good deal. Do you, you have any siblings? I have one uh,
1: fraternal twin brother who lives in Austin, Texas.
0: Okay, good deal. Are you guys pretty close?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'll give a plug for him. Uh, he's known as Dr. Nerdlove. Um, okay. and he, he's sort of a, uh, a, a, an online, well, more than online, um, uh, dating advice and columnist and YouTuber. So,
0: okay, good deal. Are you guys pretty close?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as close as we can be for not, you know, living anywhere close to each other. So we see each other at, at holidays and, and sure. stuff like that. I'll see him next week for Thanksgiving.
0: Okay. Good deal. Where are you guys all meeting at? Uh, we're gonna go all meet in uh,
1: Marfa, Texas, actually,
0: um, which is way out in West Texas. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, where do you live live right now? You said Boulder, Colorado. Okay, you do live in Boulder. Yeah. What's it like living in Boulder, and how long have you lived there?
1: So, my wife and I moved there from New York City in 2014, mm-hmm. and you know, our goal was to live in a smaller town near the mountains where we can easily access, you know, fun stuff in the outdoors and in the mountains and still be near a big airport for work and that kind of thing. Um, and I've loved the community that I've become a part of there. Um, uh, uh, you know, I think that we share a lot of the same passions and, and so, um, that's been really great. Um, you know, the ease at which I can go out my back door and, and be hiking in the mountains uh, is fantastic. I mm-hmm. wish skiing was a little bit closer. People think, Oh, you live in Colorado. You must be really close to skiing, but really the the closest good skiing, if there's no traffic is at least really 90 minutes away and there's always traffic. So it's, yeah. it's more than that. Um, yeah. but we love skiing. Um, it's been really good.
0: How did you meet your wife?
1: Uh, online dating in New York city.
0: Okay, nice. Did you yeah. go to New York kind of after college for work, I would assume?
1: Oh, it was way after college. Uh, uh-huh. So I moved there. I graduated from college in 1999, um, okay. and I moved to New York in 2009.
0: Okay. What kind of work were you doing before Velo Veta?
1: Um, At the time that I moved out there, um, I was and, – and this is – it's still going, although it's kind of, it's been on hold for a bit. Um, It's a spin-out company from Caterpillar uh, working on a highly compact, highly efficient, hydrogen-powered engine.
0: That sounds like really complicated, but really interesting. It is both of those things, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. So did you, was it hard leaving that to go do your own thing? I mean, I'm sure there's some a mixed feeling or was there not? Uh,
1: well, no. Um, it, the reason I really started thinking about shoes or, or maybe the reason I had time to start thinking about shoes is that, um, that company was kind of in a holding pattern looking for funding, sure. um, after, after the end of our previous, um, prototyping and, and testing, uh, effort. And mm-hmm. so i I found myself with extra time on my hands, which means I started thinking about things and and, uh, got excited about the shoe idea.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I'd like to go back a little bit more to the younger version of you. Just from us now interacting, I guess, for like six or seven minutes, you seem like you have the mind of an engineer. You like to make sure that you understand and you get that stuff down. With becoming that person over time, was that something that you kind of grew into in terms of just tinkering and things or is it more nature nurture what do you think uh
1: i mean i think it's mostly nature um in that most of my family are are not really technical type people or engineering type people but it it was always something that i was was interested in i think that the time i really first got really interested in it when i was how old was i like at their sixth grade or something. And I went to space camp.
0: Oh yeah. Uh, okay.
1: And, uh, I was just really fascinated with the technical details about the stuff that like when you, when you're a little kid at space camp, you know, yeah, they don't teach you much about the details, but like, you know, you go to the store and there's the, the little book that you can buy that has all of the space shuttle launch procedures listed out. And like the, the diagram of the cockpit and what all the switches do. So I, you know, little fifth grade ed, like bought this book and then I would go home and try as hard as I could to like understand everything that was in it. And, um, I think that was sort of the beginning for me. And then I remember still maybe in sixth or seventh grade, making my mom take me to the, um, I think it was the the library for, for, um, UTSA, University of Texas, San Antonio, um, to go check out a, a book on, um, aerodynamics so I could design my own model airplane. And so, uh, you know, I'm sitting there trying to decipher, I didn't even know what calculus was. And I'm looking at all these, uh, formulas with integrals and stuff, and I'm trying to figure out how to design a wing. And of course I never, like, I I was able to understand the basic idea, but I definitely wasn't able to do the math yet at that point in my life um but that's kind of how it all started
0: yeah for sure so then going into like I guess you were grade school middle school at that point you're going into high school you start to I would assume find more interest in the fine-tuned details was math super easy for you in, in high school and did you just decide at that point engineering going that route
1: yeah, yeah. I th- you know, I think you know. As I got to high school, I was able to define my goals a lot better, and I knew I wanted to become a mechanical engineer, and I knew I wanted to be involved in aerospace or space or that kind of thing. Um, and in high school, I was able to slide through all that stuff super easily. Um, when I got to college, I tried to continue sliding through uh, without doing any sort of uh, work, and that didn't work out too well for me. So I yeah. had to learn. I had to learn after I got to college how to be a good student. Um, I was kind of forced into that. And eventually I figured that part out too. Yeah. Um, and, uh, starting, what was it? I guess sophomore year was when I started getting my first like real jobs, working on spacecraft and that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I started working on a spacecraft that the department of uh, the, the physics department was, was working on. And, and so, um, uh, that's kind of how my engineering career got started.
0: Yeah. So what what college did you go to? You said to uh, Johns Hopkins. Johns Hopkins. Okay. So that doesn't sound like a super easy school to get into, but I'm not sure. Is that true? False? Yeah, that's
1: that's true. I, th- I think the year that I the year my freshman year there, we were ranked seventh in the country, something like that. And I, yeah. I i don't know what acceptance rates were or whatever, but yeah. I, I'm sure I skated through on some technicality. I don't know.
0: Yeah, for sure. Was it a stressful situation for you trying to get into that school? Or?
1: Um, I don't remember being stressed about it. Um I think I actually didn't expect to get in, and I thought really? that I was going to go somewhere else. And then when I did get in, I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm going to go there. Yeah. Um, it, so, so I didn't stress about it cause I just assumed I wasn't going to get in.
0: Yeah. Is that how you typically approach life? It sounds like a healthy way to approach life. Cause I usually end up getting disappointed.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, you know, for most of my life, I was the kind of person that really never got much stress from anything. Uh, I I've always been pretty relaxed about stuff. I feel like since, launching VeloVeta, I am constantly stressed about everything. And I think, (laughs) I think that that's because it's like 100% like my baby, there's no one else involved in it. There's no one else to blame. Like anything that happens to it is like, it feels really personal. You know, and, and I know other people, you know, if, if somebody else is like, ah, this shoe doesn't fit, like, you know, uh, I'm going to return it. Like they don't think they're making like an, a personal attack on me. Like it's a shoe that doesn't fit. This happens yeah. to everybody every day. Uh, but for me, I'm like, Oh my God, the shoe didn't fit. I like, like, you know, what, did I, I do what did I do wrong? How can I make this better? You know, like I, I stress out about everything now, which is a very unusual sensation for me that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to deal with.
0: Yeah, for sure. So how old are you now, if I may ask? I'm 46. Okay, so you're 46, and you started this company five years ago, six years ago?
1: Uh, so I started working on it in 2018. Okay. Um, and then the shoe actually launched uh, at the very end of May of this year.
0: Okay, good deal. So we are going to come back to that but i want to dig just a little bit deeper before velavetta you, so you're at college you're working at Johns yeah. Hopkins aerospace yeah. aeronautics yeah. engineering that's that's your focus yeah. what happened in between there then i guess you ended up at cat working on the hydrogen engines and what's yeah that? so what's
1: the, that? Yeah. so i went through uh, you know at first i worked on that that Satellite, when I was a sophomore, called FUSE, you know, everything's acronyms in NASA and stuff. Far Ultraviolet yeah. Spectroscopic Explorer. And then I worked on another spacecraft for the Applied Physics Lab um, in Laurel, Maryland. And then after I graduated, I worked uh, first – I started working for this con- uh, company called um, Futron, which was a, a, a defense and NASA contractor, and my first job there – was working on um, space shuttle space shuttle uh, scheduling and launch risk quant- quantification and I did that only for a l- little bit of time and then I went to work on the International Space Station uh, modeling the the risk of all sorts of bad stuff happening so like what's the probability of an astronaut dying what's the probability of the space station losing pressurization what's the yeah, you know, like like we had three or four like catastrophic instates, and like coming up with a way to mathemati- mathematically predict the likelihood of those things yeah. happening, and then what to do to make it better.
0: Yeah, and you didn't get stressed over the, any of that stuff.
1: I didn't. No, I didn't feel any stress about that. Even even you know, um, sometimes there would be things that like went wrong in orbit. Uh, and, uh, they would ask us, Hey, we have an oxygen leak somewhere. This is how we're detecting it. This is how we know what it is. Um, where do you think that, you know, what do you think the failure is? Because we have this model where we would say, okay, this is what's happening. And it would pop up like an ordered list of the most likely reasons that's happening. So we could really rapidly help like narrow down where the problem might be. Um, and so even when that stuff was happening, stress didn't, no, I never felt any stress about it.
0: Okay. that's uh, a gift. I mean, I, I think we should probably have you write a book, how not to be stressed in stressful situations. It would probably sell really well.
1: Uh, I don't think I, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't know what to say. It's just, it's just how I was. And now, now I feel like I'm not that person anymore. I don't yeah, know. Yeah,
0: For sure. Well, we'll get into that for sure. Um, so, Aeronautics, you were working with Futron after Futron. Is this when you started moving to CAT?
1: No, well, not quite. So, um, I decided I wanted to get into entrepreneurship and okay, um, and sort of do my own thing, create my own thing. So, I went to business school uh, at okay. Babson um, in Wellesley, which is a, a business school that focuses on entrepreneurship. Yeah. And then it's from there, I... Um, I co-founded a company with some folks out in Nevada that manufactured auxiliary power units for long haul trucks. And so basically what we made was, um, you know, long haul truckers, they do it less and less now, but at the time, um, basically every long haul trucker would pull off at the truck stop at the side of the road and mm-hmm. leave their big, uh, you know, 16 liter engine, idling all night long so that they could have heating and uh-huh. air conditioning or in electricity. And it's a really inefficient way to do that. So we would make a very small diesel generator with a built-in air conditioning and heating system. And it would integrate into the truck and the engine and the cabin, whatever, and provide them even better services than they would normally get, but use a small fraction of the fuel. Um, so I founded a company out in Reno, Nevada that did that. Um,
0: did it go well? Long-
1: It was, uh, in some ways it went well, in some ways it went disastrously bad. Um, the product was great. Our customers loved the product. Uh, the problems were personality related within the company. Um, and, uh, there were four co-founders, um, Two of my co-founders got pushed out really quickly. Uh, I decided that I wanted to stick it out, and I could sort of handle all the stuff that was going on. And I did that for a few more years. And after a while, I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I, I bailed, and the company was sold shortly after that.
0: Okay. Were you able to make some money off of that acquisition?
1: Uh... It wasn't a super good acquisition. Um, this is going to, it's going to sound like I'm tooting my own horn. And I think,
0: Toot it. I think, I think it. that I,
1: I think that I believe it's accurate. So um, my job was not really sales. You know, I was head of engineering. I was, I, I did a lot of business development stuff for the company. Um, sure. But I also knew the product better than anybody else. And I knew our competitors' products better than anybody else, and so what that meant was if we had a, a, a fleet customer that really needed to understand a lot about how this was going to integrate with their business, I was the one that talked to them about it. Um, and so when I left, fleet sales went down to like almost zero.
0: Wow! Um, and that's and so make the most money. Yep,
1: yeah, yep. Yeah. And so, uh, so things. You know, the company was sold, but it could have been a lot better than it was.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that was the end of that journey. What happened next?
1: So um, what happened pretty much immediately after that – let me throw this watch away. It's beeping at me. Yeah, no worries. Um, So one of the investors in that company had been – um, the first president of something called the Kauffman Foundation, which is um, a venture capital-related foundation that does it does a lot of stuff. I think the thing it's most known for is the the Kauffman Fellows Program, which places um, business school students in um, in positions with uh, venture capital firms to to develop them as potential new future VC investors. Yep. Um, and anyway, so he had been hired by Kansas State University to help them figure out how to commercialize their portfolio of patents and technology that they own. And okay. one of the things that they owned was had been donated to them from Caterpillar. Oh, interesting. Um, so Caterpillar had gotten a, a DARPA grant. DARPA is the Defense Advanced okay. Research Projects Agency. The guys that um, the robots. Yeah, all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, So so Caterpillar had gotten a a grant from DARPA to develop this very unusual engine that at the time they understood it to be very, very compact and small. Um, I don't think that they really had much of an understanding of its ability to be very, very efficient yet. They didn't really have a great understanding yet of its ability to um, use Almost any kind of fuel you could imagine. Um, them being so CAD did... or
0: them being the organization, the foundation? Either, either. Okay.
1: Um, and um, and so they, they did some studies on it. They did some design work on it. They didn't get too far. Um, the grant ended and Caterpillar ended up donating the technology to Kansas State University because they could get a huge tax break for it. I think they got a $25 million tax break. Oh my um, yeah, wow. uh, they originally asked for 50 million, um, that ended up going down to 25 million. And then there were Senate hearings about it and the law that allowed that to happen got rescinded. So uh, you, can't you can't do it. You can't do it anymore. Yeah. You can't do it anymore. Partially because of this donation. But, uh, anyway, <laughs> um, my, my investor from the previous company got in touch with me and said, Hey. Kansas State University has this technology. Do you think it's something you could do something with? And I went out and met with the folks from Kansas State, and then I got the guy who had invented it at Caterpillar. Um, So I went out and spent a week weekend with him um, at his place, uh, talking about the engine. And um, I was not really an expert in engines and thermodynamics at the time. You know, I had done a startup related to engines, but built, you know, including an engine, an engine into a product is not the same as designing an engine from scratch. Sure. Um, so I didn't really know what I was getting into, but I knew that this guy was the real deal and that he was brilliant and, um, that I trusted him and mm-hmm. I got him to agree that if we did a deal with Kansas State University, he would come on and be our chief scientist. That's right. Um, and so I did it. And, um, and the, the great thing about the technology is it turned out to be a lot more capable than we believed. Um, we uh, raised money. We, we went through a couple different um, prototype development and testing phases. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first one actually went terribly. Um, the, the the design was, was really, really unique. And it used a lot of things in unusual ways. And and ultimately what happened is all the things that were supposed to seal didn't seal. There was like air leaking everywhere. Um, And so we redesigned it to have the same basic characteristics, but to be in sort of a more conventional configuration. Um, And then we built that one.
0: Everyday engine type of situation. Yeah. So, so like, like to use normal
1: poppet valves, like we have lots of experience with in engines and to use, piston rings that, you know, are seeing forces primarily in one direction rather than lots of weird directions, and, and yeah. to get those to seal better. Um, and so, but yeah. to keep the same novel new thermodynamic cycle and the same novel new geometries. Um, and so we were able to do that, and that that engine worked a lot better. It, it worked really well. Um, okay. Given the, the budget that we had, um, the fact that we would be able to, able to design, build, and test an engine with the results that we had in that amount of time with that amount of money was really remarkable. Uh, However, the industry in general, like it's, this technology still represented a lot of changes to the status quo. Um, and, And for a lot of for complicated devices, a lot of times people, you know, if you change one thing, try to improve one thing, that seems like a lot of technical yeah. risk to make it better. If you're, if you're completely changing around like ten things, people look at it and they're like, oh, "That's yeah, terrifying." Do I do no with it? Really yeah. terrifying. Like, do I want to take on that much risk? Um, and and while our second prototype it worked really well, it wasn't like all the way there. We weren't like ready for a commercial product yet. Yeah. Um, so, and, and this industry is really really conservative much more so than most others and they've been doing it for a hundred years and making a ton ton of money doing what they've been doing for a hundred years and so if you go and say hey you got to change everything you're doing tough luck. it's difficult
0: yeah. it's
1: difficult and and, and so finding the, an investor to keep that thing going has been difficult
0: um but it's, so been, it's still going on it's still just it's
1: still going on we're still doing work on it but it's at a much lower level than it had been
0: can I ask a, it may not be a very technical question, but what I, can I want to understand? So it's you said it's hydrogen based. So is that is this a combustion engine? Yeah. Like, what is the difference between like gas and diesel? Because I know there's different temperatures involved in pressures with diesel versus gas. But how does hydrogen work to create a more efficient engine using more conventional design means?
1: Yeah. So the hydrogen has a few challenges to it, um, to to use it uh, in in an internal combustion engine. And a lot of people thought it really couldn't happen for a lot of different reasons. Um, but one of the things that's bad about hydrogen is once it lights off, um, it, it burns very, very, very rapidly. And so that does two things. It puts a lot of stress on the components of the engine. Um, and it creates a lot of what are called nitric oxide emissions. Um, and nitric oxide emissions can be controlled with catalysts, uh, but the more you make, the more catalysts you need, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and um, so controlling the combustion of hydrogen has always been really difficult. Um, lighting hydrogen off with a spark is, is easy. Um, like in a gasoline engine, gasoline engines use spark for ignition. Diesel engines Mm -hmm. don't, you just compress it enough. And just the compression creates enough heat to, to light off the diesel fuel. Um, and so, um, our engine is a compression ignition engine. Um, and one of the things that it can do that a conventional engine can't is go to really, really high compression ratios, um, like a normal, a gasoline engine might be 12 to one. A normal diesel engine might be 18 to one. Our last prototype was 56 to one. Oh
0: my
1: word. Um, And uh, one of the things that's good about that is not all fuels will light off really quickly um, with the compression ratio of like a diesel engine. Um, So if you tried to put in natural gas, in a regular diesel engine and light it off with compression, it's probably not gonna work really well because the the delay for natural gas between the time it reaches its, the temperature that it will eventually light off at and the time that it actually lights off is so long that the engine has gone all the way around again before anything yeah. happens. And so it doesn't work. Stop. Um, and hy- hydrogen is the same way. It has a really long ignition delay unless you can Compress it even farther, and the more you compress it, the shorter that delay gets. And so, with a okay. fifty-six to one compression ratio, it's like so just, instant. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, that allows us to. And, and compression ignition is generally the a, a more efficient way of burning fuels than spark ignition. Uh, it has a lot of advantages for a lot of different reasons. Um, and. You know when you're dealing with a new fuel that might be expensive uh or might be hard to get or is just you know in its earliest stages you know green hydrogen is finally becoming a real thing no one ever thought that was going to be a real thing but green hydrogen is finally becoming a real thing it's still really new efficiency is is really important you, you're not making greenhouse gases with it so you know you don't need to worry about efficiency for that but you do need to worry about efficiency for the cost of operating the engine and that kind of thing and, and yeah. conserving uh, a scarce fuel. Um, so, uh, we can burn hydrogen much, much more efficiently than you can in a spark ignited engine. And then we can also do some really creative things with how the fuel is introduced, when the fuel is introduced to, uh, slow down the rate at which it's burning which mm-hmm. keeps the temperatures from getting too high, which keeps it from making too much nitric oxide emissions. So we can have a really compact, high efficiency, zero um, carbon dioxide engine with manageable NOx
0: emissions. Yeah. Man, that's super fascinating. So, um, so in, your times of, in terms of your time allocated, what is that versus like what you're doing with VeloVeta right now?
1: Right now that, that, that company is called motive engines. Um, it's, it's almost zero time on that right now. Okay. And, and basically a hundred percent time on Velodena.
0: Okay. Good deal. Well, let's dive into that. So when did the idea come? I, I know a little bit, but for the sake of the audience, uh, would love to hear just when you first thought of the idea, when you started cutting up, making prototypes all the way to, all right, I'm going to Italy. Now we have our first production run and now I have more stress than I've ever known how to deal with.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh it started in 2018 when I noticed a lot of people discussing mostly on slow twitch about like what what cycling shoes happen to be more aerodynamic than other cycling shoes um and still useful for triathlon and people were spending a lot of money buying lots of pairs of shoes and flying out to a wind tunnel, either in North Carolina or in San Diego or wherever, and testing all these shoes to figure out which ones they wanted to use. And I was like, wow, like people are motivated for it. Like this is a product that at least some people really want, you know, a yeah. shoe that is both aerodynamic and good in transition and, and all that stuff. Yeah, And, you know, people were, uh, um, uh, you know, buying, buying shoes and cutting them apart and changing them to try to make them into something that would work. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's what got me to do the idea. And so I started messing around with designs on my computer and messing around with, um, computational fluid dynamics simulations of those designs
0: to see if, what does that actually if, mean for those of us who don't know?
1: So computational fluid dynamics is basically a simulated wind tunnel in your computer. Um, and so you, you do a 3d model of whatever it is you want to test. And then you run this simulation that calculates what the air is going to do around it. And you can figure out what happens. Like, you know, where, where where's the pressure, where's the turbulence, how, how's all that happening? Um, and I hadn't done a lot of CFD stuff in the past, Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a lot of learning for me, and, and I spent probably a bunch of months doing a bunch of simulations that ended up being completely worthless, as I was learning how to use how software. to do it in a way to get good results. Because um, mm-hmm. it's 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 really easy to like just plug in a model and and plug in some assumptions and have it run and give you pretty pictures that look great. Yeah. Um. But like, does the data actually convert at all to real life. Yeah. Um, and at first the answer was no, almost all the time, um, right. until I started, until I started getting better, better at it. Cause, cause I would look at the results and, and often, often, um, with aerodynamics, the results are unintuitive, but I was getting like really weird results. And so that would cause me to go read more and be like, Oh, I did this wrong and then I would get more results and I'd go read more. I'm like, Oh, I'm also doing this wrong. Oh, I also need to buy a computer that's 20 times more powerful than what I already have. Yeah. Um, you know, stuff, stuff to like
0: that. Process all those so, calculations.
1: Yeah. Cause it's, it got to the point where I like, okay, now I think I have a model that is going to work and I would try to run it on my laptop and I would leave it running for 12 days and it would still be running. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, Hmm, I, I need to get something better.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Is it fair to – I don't know if that's even the right way to say it, but is it accurate to say that with a fixed three-dimensional model of what something would be in the real world, you can put that through one of these CFDs, if that's what it's called, a safety. Mm-hmm. and it gives you – like, if you have the correct assumptions and the right processing power, it will give you like a one-for-one equal output of data that you would get in an actual wind tunnel? I know people are different because we're all shaped differently, so that's why they use those, but –
1: yeah, I mean it's it depends on how how, many, how how much computing power you want to put behind it and what kind of model you want to make. It, it will give you um, it will give you an estimation, um, and how close can you get to reality is the question. And and the more you know, there are different ways to model it, and you know some are sort of like averages over time, and some are more about like what's happening real time, second by second. Um, and, uh, you know, depending on exactly what information you're looking for kind of dictates on what kind of model you want to choose and sure. how much computing power it takes to execute that simulation. And so, you know, uh, the simulations that we did were what are uh, called um, uh, Re- Reynolds' average uh. Um, well, anyway, it, it, it averages the drag and results over over time because um, okay. it takes less computing power to do it. It's good enough. Like what you know, what's my average drag over ten seconds or however long the simulation goes? Sure. Um, is good enough, and you know, it's not, it's not, it's not real life. You know, the the conditions are idealized. Um, like you humidity, don't have humidity,
0: temperature, all that.
1: Well. It, yeah. Um, you, you can, you can change that in the model, but like the wind is all, you know, the wind that it's seeing is perfectly constant all the time. There's no aberrations. Yeah. It's not changing directions. The, 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 the foot and the shoe is completely stable. Um, you can do ones where it actually moves and pedals and stuff. Um, um but that's not what we did. Ours were, we did yeah. static simulations at different angles. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so that ultimately leads to like there's only so much money you can put behind something like this you know we're not developing a two billion dollar bomber for the air force uh you know <laughs> that with like unlimited resources so there's only you know we, we can go as far as we can go it's reasonable and and yeah. so um uh so that's what we did and the results were, were starting to look good and that you could make if you made the right design design choices, you could make a positive difference, um, between, between the two. Um, and so I started cutting up, um, shoes and and gluing 3d printed pieces to them and, and, um, and trying to ride in them and asking friends to ride in them and and see how that worked. Um, and, uh, once all that started looking kind of good and I was like, okay, well, how do you make a shoe? Cause I had no, no idea how a shoe was made. Um, it's so different from anything else that I've ever made before. Yeah. Uh, so I knew I needed help. Um, and so, uh, Pearl Izumi, um, has an office not too far from Boulder. Uh, and, um, I got a guy, uh, by the name of Philip Major, who had recently been the head of footwear for Pearl Izumi, to come on board and be a consultant, um, to basically teach me how shoes are made and yeah. and help me reach out to factories and figure out how to get the thing made.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a that's a big step. So tell me what that was like, because you, I mean, do you not, you reach out to him or do you knock on someone's door, Pearl Izumi? Hey, here's this is shoe. I'd love to make it and come help me. Or like, how did that happen?
1: Uh, you know, I believe that I found him on LinkedIn. I was just like searching LinkedIn profiles to find people who seem to have the right experience. And, and I was like, wow, this guy has great experience and he's just down the street. So, um, so I reached out to him and he, he was interested in helping out and, um, his experience at Pearl Zumi was manufacturing in Asia. Uh, and so that's, that's where we started out was, was looking at Asia and it was a very turbulent time for uh, manufacturing relationships between the U S and Asia. We were starting this whole trade war thing. Yeah. And
0: yeah.
1: yeah, And most U S manufacturers were fleeing China and trying to go to,
0: to Vietnam. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, So Vietnam was rapidly building up new shoe factories, um, Mm -hmm. but they didn't have a lot of experience. And so we, we approached a couple factories in China, and I, I want to say that, like, the first one we got a quote from was it wasn't even really a quote. It was yeah, we could make this shoe for you. Your minimum order quantity will be two million pairs.
0: <laughs> Basically, uh, we're not interested.
1: <laughs> I was yeah, it was it was a way to say go away. We're not gonna yeah. we're not yeah. gonna work with you. Uh, It was just the most. It was the most absurd. It's like I need to sell a pair of shoes to every triathlete in the world,
0: Um, or two. Yeah,
1: yeah. It it was ridiculous. So, um, so that didn't work. Uh, You know, Philip didn't believe that the new factories in Vietnam had the expertise yet to do something as different as what we were trying to do,
0: or even the logistics. Um, I feel like.
1: Yeah. I mean, the assembly process for our shoe ends up having to be different than a normal shoe and, and the, the grading of the last, because we have this thing that like really wraps around the whole shoe and, and to try to, to try to make that thing fit all the different sizes without having to make a different mold for every single size, uh, it, it, it requires a lot of sort of creative. Yeah uh ideas on how how the the shape of the shoe changes from size to size and stuff like that um and so so we started looking in europe instead
0: yeah so we'll dive into that in a second i want to talk a little bit about the design um when i first saw it and came across it it reminded me because i snowboard it reminded me of these bindings called flow bindings i think several companies are making them now have you heard of them
1: i don't know flow bindings no
0: so flow binding is basically similar only you're in a boot obviously but you stick your foot into the binding and as you push your foot forward the same similar similar kind of a mechanism there's a a a cord that goes around to the back and as you snap up it creates tension and pulls the tongue forward so i when i saw it i was like oh these are flow bindings but like for triathlon shoes and i was like man no one's done this yet that's awesome um so how did you come up with that design
1: a ski boot um okay so the the mechanics of the lever on the heel are just Mm -hmm. like the 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 buckles on the front of a ski boot yeah it's uh it's called an over center mechanism Mm -hmm. um and then you know with the ski boot you can lengthen them by twisting them um and ours works basically the same way by twisting a knob that has a screw that lengthens it um and uh and so it works basically exactly the same as a ski boot but just shaped to integrate into the heel of a shoe um, and so that's where the idea came from. Uh, and then one of the challenges was making that motion open the shoe enough, um, so you
0: can put it on during a race. So that,
1: yeah. So that you can put it on or in a race. And so like I did a lot of iterations with, okay, if I put the pivot here and the wire is attached there and it goes in over here and I open it, like how many centimeters of distance does that give me? And like, Figuring out how to optimize that, spent a lot of time on that.
0: Yeah. How much time?
1: Oh, God. I don't know. years? Oh, not years. Uh, You know, if I added it all up, you know, uh, probably spent a week or two on just kind of figuring out exactly where to put all those components to get it to be as good as it could be.
0: Yeah. And then when you got it, it was an eureka and eureka moment you're just holding this thing in the air singing its praises you're like this is it this is going to be the one
1: It was it, it was well so it was it was tough to convince the guys in Italy I, maybe I'm jumping forward here but they're like this this mechanism won't open enough you need at least I forget what number they said but they're like you need at least x centimeters for this to work and I was yeah. like I can I can get that and they're like no no you can't and so I went back and I was like doing it all. And then I sent them this sort of like report that has all the dimensions and how many centimeters. And, and they were kind of like, Oh, okay. I think they were still skeptical, but they were like, all yeah. right, okay. I think we can do it.
0: How did you get the introduction or was it an introduction? Was it cold call email, something of the Italians?
1: So um, we initially, our initial trip was, we, we went to go check out two different factories in Europe. One was in Spain And one was in Italy and I can't remember how I got in touch with the guy in Spain, the one in Italy, um, physique used to make their shoes at that factory in Italy. And Mm -hmm. so I got in touch with somebody who had been at physique and asked, uh, I didn't know what factory that they had been manufacturing in, but I knew they had been there. So I got in touch with somebody from physique and they said, go talk to this factory in Treviso. Um, and, uh, and gave me an email address. And so that's how I got in touch with them.
0: Yeah. So when I got to go overseas for the first time for manufacturing, for me, I grew up watching things like How It's Made or Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. They had a section where they showed the manufacturing process, and it just like blew my mind. It was the coolest thing ever. Yeah. when I went for the first time to China, I was like, I've made it. I mean, we had made no money yeah. really, but I was like, this is it. I've reached the pinnacle. That was the most exciting part for me. Do you yeah. share that at all when you went for the first time to like go set up manufacturing? I guess you kind of already had well, some. Well, you know, I,
1: I, had done, I had done manufacturing before. Um, you know, I set up a factory in, in, the United, in the United States. I set up two factories in the United States for the, the diesel APU company. And then yeah. I had been to factories in China because we considered doing mm-hmm. some manufacturing in China. So I'd, I'd seen those factories as well. So I, I had some manufacturing experience, but it was really different because all my manufacturing experience is cutting or bending metal stuff or bolting yeah. stuff together, yeah. not not soft goods and organic shapes and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and you know, one of the things that I think surprised me, and maybe it shouldn't have, but the number of different factories involved in putting a shoe together is, it's crazy how many different companies there are manufacturing stuff to go into one pair of shoes. So, you know, the first factory I visited was just the main assembly factory, which is the video that you were referring to earlier, where you have just the, the floppy upper of the shoe, and then you have the sole and you have what the the last. Lots of people in, in shoes or whatever talk about a last. I think a lot of people don't know exactly what it is. So the last of a shoe is basically just a, a piece of plastic that's in the shape of a foot that defines what the shape of the shoe is going to be. Yeah. And so, um, you know, you, you take this, the upper that has been sewn um, together and you kind of put that on the last and you put the, the sole on the bottom and you stick that in this machine and it has all these fingers around it, like grab the soft material, of the upper stretch it over applies glue to the, the bottom of the last, it's not the sole, it's the lasting board that goes on there. applies yeah. glue to the lasting board and then like stretches and puts the upper onto it and holds it and it dries and lets go. And all of a sudden you've got something that's in the shape of a shoe. Um, yeah, and it's, uh, it's really great. Yeah. Um, but on, on, before any of that happens, you have um, a company that cuts out, all the soft material for the upper pieces. And there's lots of those different little pieces. It looks like Mm -hmm. it's all one piece, but like there's a lot of different layers with a lot of different pieces. And so there's one company that basically all they do is have laser cutters that cut all that stuff up. And then all that gets sent to the stitchery. And then they stitch it all together and they stitch the little attachment points onto it and stitch it into something that looks like an upper. And then you have the company that is molding the carbon fiber soles and so they're Mm -hmm. doing compression molding of carbon fiber soles and then you have the company that's doing the injection molding of the plastic parts then you have the company that is doing the final assembly and then after that actually to get all the wires and stuff wired up together there's another company that does that by hand um And then even before all that, you have other companies that design and make the molds that are used in the injection molding machines or that are used in the carbon fiber compression molding machines. Um, All of that is for one shoe.
0: Yeah. So which leads Um, me to a couple of questions. Um, First, now I understand why shoes are so expensive. Two, um, quality control seems like that would be very difficult because I think you named off at least seven different steps or companies where you need to like almost be there to make sure somebody doesn't fudge something because when it gets four lines down, you know, then it's like, oh, now, now we have to recall these things. So how do you, how do you manage that?
1: Yeah. So basically I rely on the main factory that does like the final assembly, um, and the lasting and that kind of stuff. And so, Honestly, like I have, I've built up a really good relationship with him. I, I go there many times a year. I talk with the owner of that factory on a weekly basis and, um, and basically I have to trust him that his process is going to discover problems before they happen. Um, on top of that, uh, we visually inspect every shoe before it goes out. So, um, you know uh, every time we get an order in we get the box out we open it up um, we uh, there's actually a or we we actually right now we this is a quality control issue that didn't get caught um, and I think it was a it's really it was really more of a communication issue but the the wires that came from the factory after we started mass production were a different spec from what had been tested in the prototypes and they weren't good enough. And so, um, one of the things we do now is every time we get an order, we swap those wires out for new ones. Uh, and then we look at the shoe and, and make sure that everything looks right. The mechanism is working right. everything is printed, right. You know, the, uh, there's not cracks or, or something missing or whatever. And so that's our final check before it goes out the door.
0: Are you shipping by sea in container?
1: The, from, yeah, the, the, from, from Italy, the factory, port port. from the factory we had a container shipped over to to Houston. Uh, yeah. And then, yeah.
0: So whenever, uh, the reason I ask this next question is because whenever I started making hammocks, I was like, oh, there's like five or six pieces. I think our bill of materials ended up being like over a hundred lines. Oh, yeah. Like how, how big yeah. is your bill of materials? Cause I'm sure it's massive. Uh,
1: I don't know the answer to that. It, there there aren't that many parts in it. Most of the parts are in the upper, um, yeah. and you can't see them. Um, they're all hidden inside, basically. Um, but if I were to guess the number of parts in a shoe, it's going to be... It's only going to be like 18, 19 parts, I think.
0: Okay. That's not as bad as I thought. But if, do you – I guess let me ask this question. Whenever you came to the factory and you're like, hey, here's my, here's my model, you create a gold sample, do they basically take it and help source all the materials and all the plastics and the leathers and everything for you? Or is that more of your job?
1: It depends on, on what kind of factory you're talking to. Like the, the, the factories oh, yeah. in China are like you, you, you provide them basically a little book that has okay. all the details of Mm -hmm. how, how to go about making this shoe. Um, and they will make exactly what you give them. Yeah. Um, but stuff, right. (laughs) Right. Um, but because I had no idea what I was doing, um, I didn't have the ability to get that together properly. And so I needed a factory that was willing to like collaborate with me and help me and like walk me along. Um, and so with, uh, with where we're making the shoes that, it w- it was like, here's what my idea is. And here are my, you know, mechanical engineers brain. Like, this is how I have defined these parts, um, which is different from how the cycling shoe industry does it. You know, how do we work together to make this into something real? And he's like, okay, well, here's the next step you need to do. And here's the next step you need to do. And let's talk to this upper designer to see if he can do what you want. And, and yeah. so it was really more of a collaborative process. Sounds like a good um, the, process, yeah. The big shoe factories don't work that way. You yeah. you send them you send them what's called the tech pack, and they make it, and that's it. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's how – it's cool that you found that. I wasn't sure if, if – because, again, just talking about my own experience because I'm kind of relating it. Whenever I did stuff, like I was really – Ha- blessed to have some people walk me through the process because I had no idea either but it's good yeah. to know that the Italians will do the same thing so if I ever want to start something over in Italy I might do that and contact these same people
1: <laughs> yeah it was great China you know when when we were first talking to China the you know one of the uh, I, one of the things I said it was like I want the upper to be like a one piece upper which means like the outer shell of the upper is only one piece of material with like one seam up the back and so I think what I said was I want a one-piece upper, you know, like the Jiro Empire, just to, to, so that they knew what I was talking about because the Jiro Empire is a one-piece upper. And they were like, okay, we can do that. And then they sent me the samples of these lasted shoes without soles on them. They were exact copies of Jiro Empire, <laughs> it, like exact copies down to the exact pattern of the cooling holes and everything. And I was like, you're going to get me in a lot of trouble if I try to sell yeah. these things. Uh, like, I didn't mean copy the Jewry Empire, um, but, you know, you say something like that to these factories that... Yep, we'll do it. They're like, yep, that's it. Like, that, that those are our instructions, and that is what we were going to do. Like, they will do exactly what you tell them, mistakes and everything, you know, anything that comes back is probably your fault. But, yeah. Um,
0: so, I'm curious, with uh, um, your first purchase order, when you kind of put your money where your mouth is, you're making this order, tell me about... How many you decide to go with? How did you finance it? And did you sleep for a while afterwards?
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, so at first, I, my plan was, you know, I was talking to the, the, the factory and I was like, I want to make 500 pairs at a time and like refill as necessary. Um, and they were like, yeah, I think we can do that. And then as we got into it, Um, some of the suppliers had minimum order quantities that were higher than that. And so, um, and it was particularly for the carbon soles. the minimum order quantities got pretty high. Uh, and so we had to go with the highest minimum order quantity of the various suppliers. And so, um, that ended up being 1500 pairs.
0: How many POs have you cut since then? if, If you're allowed to share this information.
1: Oh we're still on the first the first container load of shoes of fifteen hundred.
0: Nice. When did you get those? When did they hit your door?
1: Uh like mid May.
0: Okay, so just like not too long ago. Yeah. How many have you sold through, if I may ask?
1: I think we're on like three hundred, something like that.
0: Okay, nice. And I've seen that you've started to get more of the professional field wearing some of your stuff. I imagine age groups. So, like, what's been your strategy, and how has it been going in terms of getting product out the door and in the under the right circumstances for more eyes to see it and things like that?
1: Um, yeah, it's like marketing of consumer products is something I have never done before. Um, mm-hmm. I've never been a social media guy before. Uh, and so I've been experimenting with a lot of different stuff to see what works. Um, I think that, uh, like, what really got me my initial boost uh, at, at the beginning was I had sort of shared my whole process of generating the idea and developing it. And every step I went through, I shared um, on this thread on Slow Twitch. And nice. so I think over that period of time, I got a lot of people that were like ready to go um, uh, as soon as the shoe was released. And then um, and so that was sort of my initial batch of customers. And then I think after that, there was another batch that had sort of been following along the process, but were like, I want to wait until these initial customers people who are using them come back and like give some sort of experience and say, Hey, did you enjoy using the shoe? Did it work for you? You know, what was the good, what was the bad? And so then I think, I think, um, that, you know, those people uh, started buying when, 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 you know, they would ask their friend, Hey, I know you got those, like how did those things work for you at, you know, uh, Oceanside or wherever, you know? And so those people started buying, I think that the, you know, Instagram has been relatively effective in certain circumstances. Um, I've been sort of learning a little bit more about, um, how to craft a message that is, that resonates with people, um, yeah, for sure. and what, what people are looking for and what they're not, it's been a lot of just trial and error, um, yeah. of, you know, of, of making something and, and, and sometimes it's really surprising, like, like, um, you know i'll work really hard on this idea that i have and it'll be scripted out and i'll i'll film everything really carefully and edit everything really carefully and carefully pick the perfect music and put this thing up there and nobody cares like yeah. nobody looks at it nobody likes it nobody comments on it and then i'll be out riding with some friends and i'll just take my phone out and i'll like take a little video and then be like upload and like like yeah. it blows up yeah. And I'm like, why? why was that so
0: interesting? Oh, the algorithm. This other
1: thing that <laughs> this other thing that I worked so hard on was so not interesting.
0: Yeah. Um, not, you sound like a filmmaker <laughs>
1: Yeah <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so it, that's been I've learned a lot about that and I, I, I think maybe I'm starting to get to the point where I can do something that people like on purpose. Um, yeah. rather than just by accident. Uh yeah. but we'll see.
0: Yeah. So are you accounting, research and development, uh, social media marketing? Oh, yeah. Are you you're it are it I'm right basically the right?
1: I'm basically the only employee. I do yeah. everything. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, if there's anybody out there who would be interested in helping you, is there any way that they could do so? Uh
1: maybe. Um right now I'm, you know, not making enough money to really pay anybody anything that is worthwhile uh but hopefully soon that will change um and and uh you know i think that you know operations wise with like order fulfillment and and um and that kind of thing will be an area of help that needs to be filled first and then probably social media also um it's amazing how much time it takes to do a good job on that. I really lately, I've been falling short a lot on that, um, trying to handle other stuff. So, um, those are probably the two things that I'll need help with first. Yeah,
0: for sure. Well, we'll make sure to try to share as many clips from this episode as possible and I'll make sure to (laughs) learn all your stuff. Um, what are the prices of the shoes? If I may ask,
1: uh, they are, uh, $405. Um, we typically have a 10%, uh, discount code available for people that want to sign up for our um, mailing list, which you mm-hmm. know brings it down to 360-something.
0: Okay. Sweet. So tell me a little bit um, about the ups and the downs, because like you said, you, this has changed your world in terms of how you manage stress and what's stressful. So what's that journey been like so far, the past year? E-
1: Yeah, well, if you just mean since the shoes were released, um, by far the biggest stressor was that wire issue that I talked about Um, because I I thought that I was going to be able to set this whole thing up to where it would be almost all automatic and super easy to run. And so I had a a third-party fulfillment warehouse where all the shoes went to initially – and everything was like integrated. So if somebody went to my website, they would buy the shoes. The payment was processed automatically. The order automatically goes to this warehouse where they automatically pack it up and send it off. And I don't have to do anything. Yeah. Um, That's expensive. And uh, very quickly, you know, we had a lot of sales the first couple of days because of all those people who were waiting. And yeah. then almost immediately I'm getting messages like, Hey, I just took the shoe out of the box and put it on my foot. And the first time I closed it, the wires broke. And like the first message I got from that, I was like, huh, that's really, it's really weird. Um, yeah. We'll get you a new pair of shoes. And then like, I got another message and I'm like, Oh this God, is a problem. There, there's two of them. And I got, and, and I'm like, I'm like, what am I going to do? Because not only do I now have a bunch of shoes out there with these defective wires, but I have, a whole warehouse full of them you know several states away that I don't have access to um, and they're not going to swap the wires out so what in the world am I going to do to solve this problem and I was oh it was a nightmare I wasn't sleeping at all um, and uh, you know I had to a get somebody to manufacture, you know, it's fifteen hundred pairs of shoes, four wires per pair, so I had to get somebody to manufacture six thousand wires like overnight, at at the right specification, um, and then uh, and then I had to get them all swapped out, and and why and that doesn't happen overnight. It's not possible. So I wanted yeah. it to be done overnight, but it's not possible. So I started making wires by hand in my basement. Um, <laughs> Uh, to to cover as many of the people that already had shoes in their hands as I could before the manufactured wires come in. So I'm like every morning madly like cutting and marking and crimping and heat shrinking, like, like hundreds of wires and, um, mailing them out uh, to everybody who already had shoes with instructions and links to videos and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And then, uh, and and people like people seemed really appreciative of the effort and, um, they're
0: forgiving. Yeah.
1: And they were, and they were like, you know, wow, it sucked that my wires broke, but you really fixed it really quickly. You know, this is great customer service. Thanks a lot. Or, or, Hey, I didn't even know there was a problem with the wires. And all of a sudden I get this envelope with wires and instructions and, and wow, that was great that you were so proactive. and, and I, I think in a sort of a perverse way, it, it, um, it, helped. it gave us a reputation for having good customer service. Yeah. Um, but I was losing it. I was just, if you looked at me like I like my hair was all greasy and up <laughs> and I hadn't shaved the in a week. my bags eyes. under my eyes, just like crimping wires and mailing <laughs> and emailing, Like, Oh, it yeah. was horrible. Um, so that that was probably by definitely by far the most stressful episode that yeah. we've had.
0: That's a beautiful founder story. I don't know if you've ever heard of the podcast um, "How I Built This." Have you ever heard of it? Oh yeah, 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 uh-huh. yeah. That's literally like every episode. Somebody's got that story. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I got this. It happened to me with the hammock stuff, the TRX strap guy crumpling the handles. Like yeah, it's just that's a that's a beautiful yeah. story. Yeah. And like hopefully you can write that in your book someday because I hope you do write a book. It's going to be an interesting one.
1: Oh thank you. Yeah.
0: So, what is your ultimate goal with Velovetta, or are you even able to think that far ahead?
1: I have been thinking about that some, and I, and I don't know, I don't know what the actual answer is going to be. But I, I think w- the idea that I favor right now is, um, just making really good technical footwear in di- a few different sports that help people get out and engage in their passions as, as best they can. Um, and so, you know, we're going to fill out, you know, a little bit more cycling stuff with some more road shoes and some mountain biking shoes and that kind of thing. And then where we go next, I don't know. Um, I've been thinking a lot about ski boots, um, mostly because I love skiing um, and it would be fun to be involved. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I think that we're, we'll move into a few different areas of, of, highly technical footwear for activities that people just love to do.
0: Yeah, for sure. That sounds super interesting. I'm looking forward to see what the next ones are. I actually really do want to buy a pair now. So I'm going to talk (laughs) to my wife. We'll see what happens. All right. (laughs) Um, So what makes you like the most happy in life? Like what is the most fulfilling part of life for you?
1: Oh, Uh I, I think it has to do with a combination of participating in these activities that I really love to do, but doing it with people that I really enjoy. Um, yeah. the, the older I get, the more I realize that almost everything meaningful in life has to do with your personal relationships. Mm. Um, and so, uh, man, just going on a hike with my wife and our dogs somewhere beautiful is hard to beat
0: yeah. um,
1: in terms of if you're just like just joy and happiness, yeah. that's hard to beat.
0: Yeah. And I suspected you would mention that. So I'm glad you did ask. Cause the next question I was going to ask is um, being an entrepreneur is it usually has like tremendous strain on relationships. Um, I know it personally. And then if you look at the statistics, like, entrepreneurs typically end up getting divorced and that's a horrible thing. I don't think it has to be that way, but how has that affected your relationship with you and your wife? And like, how do you, how do you combat and navigate that?
1: Um, she's super supportive. Uh, and I think, I think where it comes in is, you know, I think relationships, you know, really good long-term relationships, you need to put time into it and 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 keep that emotional connection um and that doesn't just happen by accident and so um when there are periods of time if i'm really stressed and focused on a business and traveling mm-hmm. and whatever and not thinking about um you know our relationship or that that uh, maintaining that connection sometimes it, you know, you spend some time living in the same house, but not interacting. And, um, it can cause you to feel almost more like roommates than husband and wife. Like you're occupying the same space, you're cooking or whatever, but you're not focused on each other. You're focused on whatever. And I think, I think that that is probably the biggest strain. And, um, I think that it's important to, I mean, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you're going to have times where you have to buckle down and, and be selfish about putting your time into your business. But I think that you need to recognize that that is, if you're married, doing that is neglecting your, your spouse. And so you need to make sure that that is temporary. Um, and, that you're, and that your spouse knows that it's temporary and why you're doing it and knows that you know that you're creating, you know, this potentially problematic situation and that it's not going to last forever. And then you make sure that it doesn't last forever and you pull back and you make sure you reconnect and become a couple again and yeah. don't let your entire life descend into obsession over the business.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good advice. That's a great clip too. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, it's... Relationships. I was thinking as you were saying that. I was thinking, you know, really, you could almost tie this into how you would run a business or any spouse relationship or whatnot. Like it really is important. I feel like relationships are so easily walked over because, especially in American culture, I know for me, growing up, work was always valued super highly, and then it's like, yeah, I gotta work, gotta work, gotta work, gotta work, but. If you don't have that supportive relationship, like it, it almost makes it not worth it because at the end of the night when I lay in bed, if I don't have my wife beside me or I, I don't have my friends around me to like help me through hard times, like what good is that stuff? Not, not yeah,
1: good. yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the older I get, the more I know like it's about personal relationships and it's about feeling you've accomplished something that is good, however you yeah. define that. And and that is not necessarily like like we love to define that as making money. Right, like if you've done yeah. well, you've made money. But the more I learn about myself, the more I learn about like what makes me feel satisfied is not necessarily what makes money. There are yeah. a lot of things that I do that make me feel fulfilled that have nothing to do with making money. Yeah, so.
0: for sure. Uh, a couple other questions I'll let you go because I know you got a, a race to go to. Yeah. Um, first question: Are you religious? No. you hold any yeah go for it you're gonna say something well
1: so my um my mom my mom was jewish my dad was episcopalian and uh you know i grew up uh mostly attending episcopalian church and sometimes um going to to services at the synagogue or whatever and um i don't know nothing, nothing ever really stuck with me
0: sure and can I push back a little bit because I, I, I observe in some of your values some of those, and we don't have to pin them to any t- specific religion, but like moral context, contextual values where like you're, you're realizing, oh, look, these straps are messed up and somebody might mess something up or whatever. I don't know. I'm sure you had a million lists of fears, but yeah. it seems like that those like connection, quality of product and time, like those are – pretty deep moral values that I would assume came from some of that upbringing, but maybe not.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I I feel like I have an inherent sense of right and wrong. And I feel like I, I have a strong sense of whatever my moral code is. Um, and I really try hard, uh, to live up to that. And if I don't, I feel really bad about it. And I know a lot of people, um, really feel that they get that from, from religion. Um, and that, that, informs them on, on what that moral code is. Um, maybe I was influenced by that when I was a kid or maybe not. I don't know. Uh, my, my perception of it is that I ha- I just have some sort of inherent sense of my own personal moral code. Uh, and, and maybe I'm missing the source of that. I don't,
0: sure.
1: I, I don't know. I don't know what the source is. I, I yeah. have a strong moral code that I believe in and that I take seriously. I don't know where it came from.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Well, if you ever figured out, I'd be curious to hear what you think.
1: Yeah. uh, (laughs) Me too.
0: Yeah. Um, So last question, um, and it has to do with Villaveta, and it may be a stupid question, but what would you sell it all for right now? You're not allowed to use it anymore. You're you're done. You wash your hands of this part of it.
1: Like what number?
0: Yeah, what number? Oh, God. Is there a number?
1: I'm sure there is a number. I would One. be, no matter what the number is, I would be disappointed, uh, cause I have sort of like goals and visions that I'd like to see if we can achieve. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely a number that I would accept that I'd be like, wow, like it, I'd be dumb to turn that down. Um, but I don't want to do that yet. Uh, well, maybe I don't want to do whatever. I don't know. Uh, and I have no idea what that number would be. I haven't I haven't thought about it. I, yeah. Sorry. Sorry, I don't have a ready answer no, for you. No, it's good.
0: I feel like if I offered you a billion, you'd consider it pretty heavily. I would, yeah, so <laughs> 100% I would
1: accept that number. Yeah, the number, yeah. The, the actual number is quite a bit lower than that, but I don't know what the actual
0: yeah number is. Everybody's got a number. Well, I would say don't sell it. It seems I'm excited to have found you at this level or got to know you at this level of the stage of the company because – You seem like the type who's going to continue to weather the storms and make something happen unless some force of God stops it all from happening. So I look forward to seeing how it continues to grow, and hopefully we get more people on the circuit wearing these shoes. And, yeah, if you do ski boots, snowboarding boots, specialty hiking running shoes, let me know. We'll definitely love to hear about it.
1: All that is possible.
0: Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for jumping on uh ed it was a great pleasure and yeah thank you
1: yeah, it was fun thanks
0: thank you so much for listening to this episode and thank you so much to ed for coming on and sharing a bit of his story where he's been and where he's going super excited for velovetta um and everything he's doing it'll be neat to see how they succeed because i have a high confidence that they're going to be very successful And also, if you made it to this point in the episode, just want to say thank you so much. Uh, It means a lot that you listen this far all the way through. If you're on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe. Give a comment. That really helps us to grow. Uh, Ring that notification bell. We release an episode every week and have shorts going out. If you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, It's Your iHeartRadio, or any of those others, please like and review the podcast or whatever is allowed on that platform. If you're on Spotify, you can follow us as well. And you can even submit questions there. So if you have specific questions you'd like to have, Answered or asked, uh, please write in there. You can also in- message me on Instagram through podcast stupid questions or Seth underscore T underscore Hill for my personal Instagram. Last thing on the website, stupidquestions.show. If you want to sign up for a newsletter, you can do so by going to stupidquestions.show, scrolling down. There's a place where you can subscribe there. Uh, you can also reach out and contact and ask us questions there if you wanted to. All right. Thank you guys so much. Uh, this is like episode 30 plus now i'm not even sure which one i think 31 Um, but yeah just so fun to be on this journey with you guys Um, if you think something could be better let me know all right i hope you guys have a wonderful week and we'll catch you in the next one thank you so much to precision fuel and hydration for sponsoring today's episode amazing company that makes amazing products i have been testing out anything from their chews which are my favorite or their carb only mix or different kinds of carb mixes that include the uh, different levels of sodium that you may need to keep your electrolytes in balance. Check them out. You can go to uh, pfnh.com forward slash stupid questions and you can get 15% off any of their stuff there. They also have an amazing tool that gives athletes a personalized plan for their next race, which provides a lot of great uh, basis for you to iterate and refine your strategy come race day you can make yours at precisionhydration.com slash planner that's forward slash planner and uh yeah so if you want to get an awesome discount with some awesome products make sure to check it out that's at pfnh.com forward slash stupid questions you can also find this stuff in the show notes